Amen and amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell them you love them in Jesus' name. Do it with a smile on your face this time. <laughs> I love you. Praise God. If you have your Bibles, again, we're not going to get too far today, but you can go if it makes you feel better to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. For those of you that may be just joining us last week, we actually started a series um, on Isaiah 53, and we're simply calling it Behold the Lamb. And I, I shared with everyone here last week that even though it is true that all Scripture is inspired of God and is profitable for correction, for reproof, for instruction, that the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work that God has called us to do, um, there are some scriptures, and I'm sure that all of you would agree with me, that just have a greater weight of glory than others because they are doing just that. They are revealing the glory of God or they are revealing the uh, glorious, majestic character of God. When we talk about the glory of God, essentially we are talking about His character. We are talking about the splendor of the character that is unique to Almighty God. So when we give Him glory, we are magnifying His character. We are worshiping our God for His greatness. And there are just some scriptures in the Bible that carry a greater weight of God God's glory than others because they have been designated by God to reveal the greatness and majesty of His character. Uh, for instance, Matthew certainly was inspired by the Holy Spirit to record for us that Judas, overwhelmed with guilt at selling out Jesus Christ, threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Okay? That is the inspired Word of God. But I do believe it's safe to say that you probably will draw much more from the inspired words of John, who, when he was given a glimpse of the throne room of God in heaven, wrote in Revelation chapter 7, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude with no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might, be to our God forever and ever Amen and amen. Okay? Now, both of those scriptures are inspired by God. However, I think you would agree with me that they are not equal in their weight of glory. I am certain that you are going to gain greater understanding of God in what is recorded for us in Revelation 7 than you are in Matthew 27. Not that you can't learn some things from Matthew 27, but it's just as far as the revelation of God is concerned, there is so much more that you see there in Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. Both are inspired, but not equal in their weight of glory. Now, I say all of that once again because 
few scriptures in either the Old or the New Testament carry a greater sense of glory than Isaiah 53. If you doubt that, you should have been here last Wednesday when I just simply read Isaiah 53 and without comment, you could just sense the presence of God come in on the wings of that Scripture. Isaiah 53, which with razor-sharp precision details the life the ministry, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and even gives us glimpses into the future glory of the Messiah. And he writes these things 700 years before the Messiah will ever be born. And that's what I want you to keep straight in your mind as we go through this study. We're not going to study the whole book of Isaiah. We're just going to focus on Isaiah 53. But understand that... That is the perspective of Isaiah. He is prophesying events that will not occur for another 700 years. And again, I want to remind you that the prophecies of Isaiah specifically are so accurate that liberal scholars of this day dismissing the possibility of anything being supernatural have viciously and violently attacked the authorship of this letter, and even its timing. Rather than a single author living and ministering over a lifetime, they assert that there were at least three different authors that lived centuries apart from each other, and they were actually recording history that had already occurred, rather prophecy than that which has yet to be fulfilled in the future. But all of the evidence that we have, including the Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in 1947, all point to one author, a man named Isaiah, who, powerfully anointed by the Holy Spirit, was given insight into the coming Messiah and all that God the Father was going to accomplish through Him, His only begotten Son. Now listen, truthfully, I could go back through everything we talked about next week and teach it all over again because I love that stuff and it just so encourages my faith when I go over those. But I I can't recap everything that we did. So I would encourage all of you that were maybe not here last week to grab a copy of that CD at the uh, CD desk or we're going to start posting Wednesday night on our podcast as well so you can go and listen to that free at any time but certainly you want to avail yourself of what we talked about last week because it was fascinating and I believe with all of my heart that the information we share with you next week um, will really build you up and encourage you um, when it comes to the reliability of the word of God there is one thing however I do want to remind you of that we talked about last week. And I pray that all of you are taking notes, especially tonight, and you'll understand why here in a few moments. Recorded for us in four chapters in the book of Isaiah are prophetic songs, four prophetic songs that are often referred to as the servant's songs. Now that's not servant's plural, that's servant's possessive, okay? That's the servant's 
song. And these are prophetic glimpses into the inner workings of the ministry of the coming Messiah. The first one is found in Isaiah 42, 1 through 9. The second one is Isaiah 49, 1 through 13. The third is Isaiah 50, 4 through 11. And then the portion of Scripture we are studying, the fourth of these prophetic songs, Isaiah 52, 13 through 53 and verse 12. That's the end of 53. Now again, I want to remind you that when, and let it be understood as we go through, because I can't repeat this every time, but when I say Isaiah 53, I mean Isaiah 52, 13 through Isaiah 53 and verse 12. That's the end of Isaiah 53. Remember what I said to you last week, and I think most of you have been around the faith long enough to know, and if you haven't, that's fine. Everybody needs to learn at some point. Just understand that when the Scriptures were originally written, okay, they didn't have chapters and verses. They didn't have that. Those were added much later. Much later when they were translating the Bible over. They put in chapters and verses. Not one book in the Bible had chapters and verse. Those were added. And they were added to make the Bible more accessible. Make it a little easier to remember. Make it a a little easier to memorize. Imagine the train wreck we would have on Sunday morning if we had no chapters and verses. And I just said, do your best to find this portion of Scripture. It's much easier for me to stand up and say, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, verse 49. You immediately pick up on that. And so that's why it was done. It wasn't to add or take away from Scripture, just to make it more accessible and more uh, uh, able to be studied and to be memorized. The problem is, is that a lot of times they miscalculated, I guess, where one thought was ending and another thought was beginning. And so sometimes they were misplaced. This is one of the places where it is misplaced. Because it really, Isaiah 53 should start at Isaiah 52, verse 13, and then it goes to Isaiah 53, verse 12, or the end of that chapter. That's all one thought. So please just, as we go through, when I say Isaiah 53, really I'm talking about 52 um, and verse 12 all the way through, uh, uh, excuse me, 52, 13 through uh, 53, 12. That's what we're talking about. That's one single thought. And in those four songs, the Messiah is referred to as the servant of the Lord. So when you see that, if you have a New King James version, I'm not sure of the other versions, but in the New King James, that's why I've always liked the New King James because it capitalizes proper words. And servant in the Lord is capitalized because it is a reference to the Messiah. Okay. Now, these prophetic songs, these four prophetic songs, again found in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53, serve 
as the most comprehensive prophecy concerning the coming Messiah and His ministry in the entire Old Testament. Now, you know that there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the coming Messiah. Okay, So I'm not taking away from them. I'm just simply saying that there is no greater detail to His life, His ministry, His death, and His resurrection than what you find in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, and 53. It lays it out clearly. It is not an overstretch at all when we say that nowhere, nowhere in the entire Old Testament is the coming of the Messiah more clearly revealed than in all the prophecies in the book of Isaiah. If you've ever read through Isaiah, you just know Jesus is from chapter 1 to chapter 66. It is amazing how you get this glimpse of the ministry of the Messiah. And if you would, just allow me a minute to, to run through that with you. More importantly, I would just pray that as I'm giving this, you would allow your heart just to rise in adoration before God that He would not require us to follow Him blindly, but would actually give us every reason to believe that He is the God of the Bible and He is the God that gave Isaiah these prophetic words. You know, a lot of times when we think of faith, we just kind of get this idea of a blind leap and just hoping that God will catch us, that, that we have to check our brains in, that, that it's wrong to use our reason, that it's wrong to use our logic. And that is just not the case. God gave us the ability to reason. In Isaiah, He tells us, let us reason together. There's nothing wrong with using your mind. Now at some point, you've just got to say, all right, I may never have the proof that I want, but all of the evidence would suggest that God can be trusted and I'm just going to believe Him and step out in Jesus' name. And that's what I see just here in Isaiah. Now there's other places in that, but Isaiah alone is amazing. Remember, 700 years before Jesus Christ is born, in this one book alone, Isaiah, it is prophesied that the Messiah would be the incarnate Son of God or the Emmanuel. That's uh, chapter 7, verse 14, and 8, verse 8. It prophesies that His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. 9 verse 6. It prophesies that He will be the branch, which really is the idea of a family tree. This is telling us the line or the lineage that Jesus will be born from. Isaiah 4 verse 2, Isaiah 11 and verse 1. It prophesies that He would be the servant of the Lord. 42 verse 1, 49, 5 through 7, 52 verse 13, and 53 verse 11. It prophesies that he'll be born of a virgin. That's in 7 verse 14, and it's fulfilled in Matthew 1, 20 through 23. That he would one day rule the nations of the world, 9 and verse 6, and that is going to be fulfilled in the future according to Revelation 11 and verse 15, and then 19, 11 through 21. It prophesies that he will be united 
uniquely filled with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 11, verse 2, that is confirmed in Luke 4, 18 through 19, and Acts 10 and verse 38. It prophesies that he would be rejected by Israel. Chapter 8, 14 through 15, and he certainly was in John 1 and verse 11, where it says he came to his own, but his own received him not. And again in Mark chapter 12 and verse 10. It prophesies that he will minister in the region of Galilee, chapter 9 and verse 2, and it's fulfilled in Matthew 4, 14 through 16. He would heal the sick, Isaiah 53, verse 4. It was confirmed in Matthew 8 and verse 17. And then finally, it was prophesied that he would, in the face of brutality from his enemies, remain absolutely obedient to his Father and resolve to continue in perfect obedience to the cross that he would bear. That's chapter 50, 6 through 7, and that is fulfilled in Hebrews 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. That is just a sampling of many prophecies that I don't even have time to go through right there. However, all of those prophecies within Isaiah, Isaiah 53 stands among them alone. It literally stands head and shoulders above all of the other prophecies. And I don't know if you've ever considered this, But uh, I want to show you one portion of Scripture that I think just emphasizes the significance of Isaiah 53. You can turn with me if you want to, or you can follow along on the screen. It is in Acts 8 and verse number 26. This is when Philip, who was a deacon, went down into the city of Samaria. I've mentioned this the last couple of weeks on Sunday morning. But he goes down to Samaria, preaches Jesus, and the whole place just explodes. I mean, God just tears that city up. People are filled with joy. People are healed, set free. The lame are walking again. Demons are coming out. Great joy fills the city. And the Bible says this. Now, an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, Arise and go toward the south along the road, which goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is desert. So he arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, a eunuch of great authority under Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who had charge of all her treasury and had come to Jerusalem to worship, was returning. Now, we don't know a lot, But what we do know really informs us uh, of great detail. This is why the Bible is to be believed over mythology. People say, well, what separates mythology from what you see in the Bible? These kind of details. A man from Ethiopia. Um, Under the authority of Candace, the queen. I mean, these are historical uh, things that we can document, that we can verify as well. This, the Bible says that, that this eunuch who served in a high-ranking position um, had been in Jerusalem worshiping God. Um, evidently, he had embraced the Jewish God, Jehovah, um, whether he understood salvation or anything, I don't know, but he at least knew that there was one God, and it was the God of Israel. And that's all that he knows, and that's all that we know at this point. But listen to this. And sitting in his chariot, he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him. I love that. Think about this. He's in a horse-drawn chariot, but the Spirit says, go and catch up. (laughs) 
and, and, and get there. I mean, so he's not only empowered to know where this eunuch is, he's empowered to outrun a horse-drawn chariot. Okay, that's the bionic man, okay? Then the Spirit said to Philip, go near and overtake this chariot. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. And he said, do you understand what you were reading? He says, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he asked Philip to come up and sit with him. The place in the Scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before a shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his justice was taken away, and who will declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. You know what that is? Isaiah 53, 7, and 8. So the eunuch answered Philip, and he said, I ask you, of whom is this prophet speaking of, himself or some other man? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning at this Scripture, he preached Jesus to him. Now, listen, I'm certainly not suggesting that you can't do that with any of the prophecies in the Old Testament. But it does seem to be that all prophetic roads concerning the coming Messiah eventually flowed out of Isaiah 53. As I told you last week, there is no other prophet of the Old Testament that is more quoted than Isaiah. And almost the entirety of Isaiah 53 is quoted eventually throughout the New Testament. It is incredible. It is like the crux of the Old Testament. It comes down to Isaiah 53. These prophecies that I just read to you a few moments ago, those are all just from Isaiah. Just from Isaiah. But all told, as I said a few moments ago, there are over 300 prophetic scriptures uh, concerning the coming Messiah. Over 300. And I was reading this today, and I've shared this before, but it's been a while. Some of you probably know it. It's, it's somewhat old news, but every once in a while, it's just good to be remembered of it. The odds of one man, one man fulfilling eight of those 300 prophecies, just eight. We're not even going to go into the 300. The odds of one man fulfilling just eight of those prophecies is one in 100 million billion. Now, I don't know what that is, okay? This, I, don't, I can't even comprehend 100 million billion, okay? But those are the odds. A mathematician sat down and he said, the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of the 300 prophecies is one in 100 million billion. I don't understand that number. Can't comprehend it, okay? But I know this, again, because of a mathematician, that is equivalent to, um, let me make sure I get this right, it is equivalent to 100 million billion silver dollars, okay? And if you had 100 million billion silver dollars, you could cover the entire state of Texas two feet deep. That's 100 million billion. Cover the entire state with silver dollars two feet deep. The odds of one man uh, fulfilling eight prophecies would be equivalent to marking one of those quarters, throwing it 
into the state, taking one man, blindfolding him, and say, you can wander through the whole state, but you have to pick the one that's marked on your first try. That's the odds of one man fulfilling just eight. Jesus fulfilled them all. Because He is the King of kings and He is the Lord of lords. Amen. I mean, it's just so awesome when you think of those things. And it's, I just, I love talking about it. And even though we're not breaking down, it's just God is saying, yes, you do have to exert your trust and your faith. But I'm not asking you just to blindly leap off. I've given you great evidence that these things are true and that I can be trusted. Now, I only have two more thoughts that I want to leave with you, okay? And then we're going to conclude our introduction to this series. I'm not going to even get into it tonight because I'll be be really blessed if I can keep you with me for these two thoughts because you're going to need to really stay with me and pay attention. And I've, I've just been really working this through in my mind, hoping that I can keep you and, and be able to, to share it with you as it's in my heart. But I, I want to just have some introductory comments, and then next week we'll really get into the meat of this. First of all, what blows me away is considering Isaiah's point of view when he is seeing this prophetic word. His point of view. His vantage point, if you will. How he, at that moment, 700 years before Jesus is born, how he is seeing the events of Isaiah 53. I don't know if you've ever considered this. Remember first, that Isaiah is receiving from the Lord not only a vision of Messiah's suffering, how he will suffer, but he's also getting a vision of the reason of his suffering as well. Now, you and I don't think anything of that. But up until Isaiah, they had had glimpses of the suffering Messiah, but never knew why. And that became the major, major stumbling block for the Jewish nation at the coming of Christ. Because they never considered that their Messiah would have to die for sin. They never thought that way. No one had any idea why the Messiah would have to suffer. Like I said, there have been glimpses of prophecies prophesying His suffering. The very first one that was ever given. Genesis 3, 15. Remember the Lord says to the serpent, He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman, between her seed and your seed. He will crush your head. You will bruise His heel. That's the first mention of the suffering of the Messiah. But they never understood why until Isaiah. When Isaiah came, he not only caught a glimpse of how the Messiah would suffer, but he also began to understand why he would suffer, the reason of his suffering. In fact, it has been said by many scholars that if the entire New Testament was lost, if you lost the entire New Testament letters, with the exception of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that lay out Christ's life, that you would still be able to figure out the plan of salvation simply by reading the theology that is found. 
in 12 verses in Isaiah 53. It is amazing. The theology in Isaiah 53, it is nothing but the substitutionary atoning death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So if Paul, if Paul had written all the letters, but we lost them all, if the only thing we had were the four Gospels and Isaiah 53, there would be enough information in Isaiah 53 to lead you to salvation in Jesus' name. That's how powerful this is. Now, this is what just blows me away. And again, I, I hope I can do this without losing you. You have to understand how he's receiving it. The point of view that he is viewing all of these events as they're happening. Because typically, when a, when a prophet would prophesy under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and we don't know how it all went down, but as he would pray and the Holy Spirit would come upon him and he would prophesy whether writing it or he's speaking it, typically he is going to prophesy an event that has yet to be fulfilled in the future. We get that, okay? Well, as Isaiah's prophesying Isaiah 53, he's, he's not just looking ahead to the cross. If you read it, He's actually being taken by the Spirit past the cross to the end of the age and is turned by the Spirit back and He looks at the cross as, as if it had already been fulfilled and He's prophesying what Israel will say in the end times. Okay? Now, I'm already losing some of you. Okay? So I know it's really back to the future stuff, you know, but hop in my DeLorean, we'll get 88, and we'll figure this all out together, okay? So here's Isaiah. Let's say that this holy desk here represents the cross, okay? He's 700 years removed from the cross. He's praying. The Holy Spirit takes him in the Spirit, not just to the cross, but takes him at least, because we don't know when Christ is coming again, at least 2,000 years after the cross, at the very end of the age, before the return of Jesus Christ, spins him around and he shows him the cross as a finished work. We know that because of the language. The language of Isaiah 53 is past tense. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised. So he's looking back at the work already accomplished. So he's standing in the Spirit at least 2,000 years removed from the cross and he's actually prophesying what Israel will say at the end of the age, right before Christ comes again. Now, just let, stay with me a minute. We believe that Scripture is very clear that right before the second coming of Christ, not the rapture. The rapture is when the church is taken up to be with the Lord. Okay, The second coming is when Jesus returns visibly, physically to the earth and establishes His millennial reign of 1,000 years. Okay, We believe Scripture is very clear that before the second coming of Christ, right at the end of the age, there is going to be um, an opening of Israel's eyes, and in mass, they are going to return 
to Jesus Christ and receive Him as the Messiah. That The Scriptures are very clear on this. This is why the church is so sympathetic towards Israel. Because we do not believe that God is through with Israel yet. The pause has been hit. Okay, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But we are told in Scripture that before the second coming of Christ, the eyes of Israel will be open, and in mass, they will turn to Christ and embrace Him as the Messiah. Paul talked about it in Romans 11, 25-27. He says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness, in part, has happened to Israel. Now listen to this. Until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay? Again, just stay with me. We are living right now in a time that Scripture calls the time of the Gentiles or the times of the Gentiles. Okay? The times of the Gentiles began on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out. And God became a, or Christ became the light to the Gentile nations. All through the book of Acts, what do you see? Israel rejecting Christ. By and large, there were Jews that received Christ as the Messiah. But by and large, the nation rejecting Christ as the Messiah and the Gentiles embracing Christ as the Messiah to the point where um, there was even a shift in the church. It went from Jerusalem to Antioch. And it was from Antioch that the Gospels began to be preached through the other nations. Okay? We've been living in the time of the Gentiles for the last 2,000 years. Okay? And the times of the Gentiles will continue until Christ comes again. And then He'll usher in His, His kingdom. At some point, right before Christ returns, okay, uh, roughly three and a half years into a seven-year tribulation, at some point right there, um, Israel is going to suddenly turn to God and through God they will come to Christ and see Him as the Messiah. What we believe happens if you go through, and I didn't really intend this to be a uh, prophetic lesson here today in eschatology, but here's what we see happening. At some point after the church is raptured, there is going to be chaos worldwide. You know, just no one's going to know what's going on. It's just going to be crazy here. And out of that chaos is going to come a one world leader. And I'm going to tell you, the stage is already being set. This is, this is the war. I'm not being political. I'm just telling you the truth. The reason that people hate Donald Trump is he's a nationalist and the whole world is global. There is a globalism that is coming. A one world government. You can see it just coming together right now. Okay, And we believe that after the church is raptured, there is going to come a figure that the Bible refers to as the Antichrist. Or the man of sin. The man of perdition. The beast. There's a number of names that are given to him. And he is going to have a wisdom and is going to be able to solve seemingly all the problems. And one of the main major problems is that he's going to introduce a peace treaty between Israel and her enemies. And for the first time, there is going to be peace in the Middle East. Unprecedented peace. 
And the whole world, like Paul said it, they're going to just cry out, peace, peace, and safety. Everything's going to look good. Halfway through that agreement, though, three and a half years in, the Antichrist is going to revoke that. And he's going to come in and he is going to seek to level Israel. Many are going to escape. And it's in that time of great sorrow that they're going to turn to God. And God's going to open up their eyes. Because listen to what he says. And so also Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. And he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And then in Zechariah 12 and verse 10, it says, And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. They're looking back now on the crucifixion. They're going to look on Him who they pierce. Yes, they will mourn for Him as one mourns for His only Son and grieve for Him as one grieves for His firstborn. So in this treachery, in the midst, right there at the end when they're betrayed, they're going to turn their eyes to God and say, Father, deliver us, save us. And God's going to send grace upon them, open their eyes, and for the first time, they're going to see that Jesus was the Messiah that was long prophesied. And so, and so what's happening again? Hope I'm, you're still with me? Okay. Here he is. Let me go through it one more time. Isaiah, 700 years before the cross, he's praying, and the Holy Spirit takes him past the cross, takes him all the way to the end of the age, 2,000 years at least past the cross, flips him around and shows him the finished work and what he's saying, I'm going to prophesy now what Israel will say in that day. In Isaiah 53, it says, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Israel thought Jesus was dying on the cross for his own sin, his blasphemy, for his ridicule against the law. That's what they thought. He was smitten of God, but they're going to realize no. He was wounded for our transgressions. They're looking back now at the cross and saying, He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was on Him, and by His stripes we are healed. They will finally acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. And that's what He's seeing there in Jesus' name. Isn't that just awesome? Like that is the vantage point that He is looking. So always keep that in mind as we walk through this. That He's not looking just ahead. He's actually going into the future looking back upon the finished work of the cross. Now, there's one more thing. And if you thought that was hard to follow... (laughs) Buckle up. I'm going to do my best here. But hang in there because it just, again, it should show you how God superintended the work of the Bible. Okay? Last week, if you're here, you remember that I shared with you how the book of Isaiah is really a miniature Bible. And it just mimics the Bible perfectly. Okay? The Bible, okay, Um, is made up of 66 books. The book of Isaiah has 66 chapters. The Bible is broken up into two sections, Old and New Testament. The book of Isaiah is clearly laid out in two sections. 
In the Old Testament, there are 39 books. In the first section of Isaiah, there are 39 chapters. 1 through 39. Clearly, judgment. That's all you see is judgment. Just like the Old Testament. The New Testament has 27 books. There are 27 chapters in the second half of Isaiah. Okay? From, uh, from 40 to 66. Okay? Um, the general theme of the New Testament is grace and mercy. And the second half of Isaiah, 40 to 66, is all the redemptive work of the coming Messiah. It perfectly matches the Bible. Okay? Now, I've given you that. Stay with me. The second section, okay, the part that represents the New Testament, the, the second section from chapters 40 to 66 represent the entire New Testament and they deal exclusively with the good news, the deliverance, and the redemption of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That second section actually divides down. So we're talking about 40 through 66. That one section divides down into three subsections. Three of them. Okay, Each including nine chapters. The first one is chapters 40 through 48. And they deal with Israel's deliverance from the Babylonian captivity. The second section, 49 through 57 focus on redemption from sin that is found in the Messiah. And then the third section is 58 through 66, and it looks forward to the final redemption from the curse of sin, the millennial reign. Remember last week I shared with you that one of the last verses of chapter 66 is the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, now, (laughs) if we get this, each one of those three sections Each one of those three sections ends with a divine warning for those who do not find or seek redemption in the Messiah. Isaiah 48 ends with verse 22, there is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. That's repeated in the second subsection, Isaiah 57 verse 21, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The third section or subsection, I should say, ends with Isaiah 66 and verse 24, and they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of men who have transgressed against me, for their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Does that sound familiar? Jesus quoted that describing the horrors of hell, that it was a place where the worm does not die and the fire does not quench. Okay, so the end of all three sections comes with a warning. There is no peace for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. And um, you will die eternally. The worm will not die. The fire is not quenched. Okay, now, here's the goodness of God. I didn't know this. Like, I'm not a scholar. I just study. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is centered directly between the two curses that are found in Isaiah 50, 48 and Isaiah 57, which say 
there is no peace for the wicked. And the other one, there is no peace for the wicked. And Isaiah 53 stands right in the middle of that. So in the middle of two proclamations, there is no peace for the wicked, comes Isaiah 53 and the hope of the coming Messiah. If that wasn't strong enough to show that God stands between judgment to offer redemption, think of this. That the absolute center of Isaiah 53. So between two pronouncements of judgment, there is no peace for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. It's 53. But then the center verse of Isaiah 53 is verse 5, which says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. So two pronouncements. There is no peace for the wicked. And then right in the middle of it, but the chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes we are healed. In Jesus' name. That is the goodness of God. Only God could have constructed the Bible. Only God could have done it. In Jesus' name. How many of you are glad that, that right in the middle of judgment is God's mercy? Amen. And you know what? You've got to remind yourself of things, especially if you're like me and you just like stuff like that. You have to remind yourself that God didn't construct the Bible like that so that we would just sit here and go, ooh, ah, whoa. That's not it. He put it all together to answer the one question. How can man be saved? How can man be forgiven of his sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. And my prayer is that if, if for some reason you're here tonight and you do not know Him, that through the midst of this study you would see the grace of God and how much He loves you. In Jesus' name. Precious Father in Heaven, we worship You tonight. Lord, I, I just love sharing along these lines and I look forward next week to just getting into the actual study and start going through this verse by verse but what a joy it's been just these last couple of weeks looking at some of these introductory remarks and especially Lord those things that highlight the reliability of scripture and the supernatural origin of it we realize that you used men to write but it was Your Holy Spirit that moved upon them at the right time to say the right things, to record them at the right moment so that when we would hold the book of Isaiah in 2019, we could stand in absolute amazement that the very center of judgment where there is no peace for the wicked is that the chastisement for our peace was placed upon You and with your stripes, we're restored to God. Only you can do that. And I pray, Lord, that as we leave tonight, we would leave with great courage in our heart, knowing that if you're for us, no one can be against us. In Jesus' name. And everyone said amen and amen. God bless you, everybody. Have a wonderful evening.